Section 13 of A Romance of Two Worlds by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8, Part 1, A Symphony in the Air. Within a very short time, I became a temporary resident in the house of Heliobas, and felt myself to be perfectly at home there. I had explained to Madame Denise the cause of my leaving her comfortable pension, and she had fully approved of my being under a physician's personal care in order to ensure rapid recovery. But when she heard the name of that physician, which I gave, in accordance with Zara's instructions, as Dr. Casimir, she held up her fat hands in dismay. "'Oh, mademoiselle!' she exclaimed. "'Have you not dread of that terrible man? Is he not he that is reported to be a cruel mesmerist who sacrifices everybody?' "'Yes, even his own sister, to his medical experiments. "'Ah, mon Dieu, it makes me to shudder.' "'And she shuddered directly, as a proof of her veracity. "'I was amused. "'I saw in her an example of the common multitude, "'who are more ready to believe in vulgar spirit-rapping and mesmerism "'than to accept an established scientific fact. "'Do you know Dr. Casimir and his sister?' I asked her. "'I have seen them, mademoiselle, perhaps once, twice, three times. "'It is true, madame, is lovely as an angel. "'But they say,' here she lowered her voice mysteriously, "'that she is wedded to a devil. "'It is true, mademoiselle, all people say so. "'And Suzanne Michaud, a very respectable young person, mademoiselle, "'from Atiole, she was employed at one time as under-housemaid at Dr. Casimir's, "'and she had things to say, ah, to make the blood like ice.' "'What did she say?' I asked with a half-smile. "'Well,' and Madame Denise came close to me and looked confidential. "'Suzanne, I assure you a most respectable girl, said that one evening she was crossing the passage near Madame Casimir's boudoir, and she saw a light like fire coming through the curtains of the portière, and she stopped to listen, and she heard a strange music like the sound of harps. She ventured to go nearer, Suzanne is a brave girl, mademoiselle, and most virtuous, and to raise the curtain, the smallest portion, just to permit the glance of an eye, and imagine what she saw. Well, I exclaimed impatiently, what did she see? Ah, oh, mademoiselle, you will not believe me, but Suzanne, Michaud, has respectable parents, and would not tell a lie. Well, Suzanne saw her mistress, Madame Casimir, standing up near her couch with both arms extended as to embrace the air. Round her there was, believe it or not, mademoiselle, as you please, a ring of light like a red fire, which seemed to grow larger and redder, always. All suddenly Madame grew pale and more pale, and then fell on her couch as one dead, and all the red fire went out. Suzanne had fear, and she tried to call out, but now see what happened to Suzanne. She was pushed from the spot, mademoiselle, pushed along as though by some strong personage, yet saw no one till she reached her own door, and in her room she fainted from alarm. The next morning Dr. Casimir dismissed her, with her full wages and a handsome present besides. But he looked at her, Suzanne said, in a manner to make her tremble from head to foot. "'Now, mademoiselle, judge yourself whether it is fit for one who is suffering with nerves "'to go to so strange a house.' "'I laughed. Her story had not the least effect upon me. "'In fact, I made up my mind 
that the so respectable and virtuous Suzanne Michaud had been drinking some of her master's wine, I said, "'Your words only make me more desirous to go, Madame Denise. Besides, Dr. Casimir has already done me a great deal of good. You must have heard things of him that are not altogether bad, surely.' The little woman reflected seriously, and then said, as with some reluctance, "'It is certainly true, mademoiselle, that in the quarter of the poor he is much beloved. Jean Duclos, he is a chiffonnier, had his one child dying of typhoid fever, and he was watching it struggling for breath. It was at the point to die. Monsieur le Comte Casimir, or Dr. Casimir, for he is called both, came in all suddenly, and in half an hour had saved the little one's life.' I do not deny that he may have some good in him, and that he understands medicine, but there is something wrong. And Madame Denise shook her head forlornly a great number of times. None of her statements deterred me from my intention, and I was delighted when I found myself fairly installed at the Hotel Mars. Zara gave me a beautiful room next to her own. She had taken pains to fit it up herself with everything that was in accordance with my particular tastes such as a choice selection of books, music including many of the fascinating scores of Schubert and Wagner, writing materials, and a pretty full-toned pianette. My window looked out on a small courtyard, which had been covered over with glass and transformed into a conservatory. I could enter it by going down a few steps, and could have the satisfaction of gathering roses and lilies of the valley, while outside the east wind blew and the cold snowflakes fell over Paris. I wrote to Mrs. Everard for my retreat, and I also informed the Challoners where they could find me if they wanted me. These duties done, I gave myself up to enjoyment. Zara and I became inseparables. We worked together, read together, and together every morning gave those finishing touches to the ordering and arrangement of the household which are essentially feminine, and which not the wisest philosopher in all the world has been, or ever will be, able to accomplish successfully. We grew to love each other dearly, with that ungrudging, sympathizing, confiding friendship that is very rarely found between two women. In the meantime, my cure went on rapidly. Every night, on retiring to rest, Heliobas prepared a medicinal dose for me, of the qualities of which I was absolutely ignorant, but which I took trustingly from his hand. Every morning a different little phial of liquid was placed in the bathroom for me to empty into the water of my daily bath, and every hour I grew better, brighter, and stronger. The natural vivacity of my temperament returned to me. I suffered no pain, no anxiety, no depression, and I slept as soundly as a child, unvisited by a single dream. The mere fact of my being alive became a joy to me. I felt grateful for everything, for my eyesight, my speech, my hearing, my touch— because all my senses seemed to be sharpened and invigorated and braced up to the keenest delight. This happy condition of my system did not come suddenly. Sudden cures mean sudden relapses. It was a gradual, steady, ever-increasing, reliable recovery. I found the society of Heliobus and his sister very fascinating. Their conversation was both thoughtful and brilliant, their manners were evenly gracious and kindly, and the life they led was a model of perfect household peace and harmony. There was never a fuss about anything. The domestic arrangements seemed to work on smoothly oiled wheels. The different repasts were served with quiet elegance and regularity. The servants were few, but admirably trained, and we all lived in an absolute calm atmosphere, 
unruffled by so much as a breath of worry. Nothing of a mysterious nature went on, as far as I could see. Heliobas passed the greater part of the day in his study, a small, plainly furnished room, the facsimile of the one I had beheld him in when I had dreamed those three dreams at Cannes. Whether he received many or few patients there I could not tell, but that some applied to him for advice I knew, as I often met strangers crossing the hall on their way in and out. He always joined us at dinner, and was invariably cheerful, generally entertaining us with lively converse and sparkling narrative, though now and then the thoughtful tendency of his mind predominated and gave a serious tone to his remarks. Zara was uniformly bright and even in her temperament. She was my very ideal of the Greek psyche, radiant yet calm, pensive yet mirthful. She was full of beautiful ideas and poetical fancies, and so thoroughly untouched by the world and its aims that she seemed to me just to poise on the earth like a delicate butterfly on a flower, and I should have been scarcely surprised had I seen her unfold a pair of shining wings and fly away to some other region. Yet, in spite of this spiritual nature, she was physically stronger and more robust than any other woman I ever saw. She was gay and active, she was never tired, never ailing, and she enjoyed life with a keen zest such as is unknown to the tired multitudes who toil on hopelessly and wearily, wondering, as they work, why they were born. Zara evidently had no doubts or speculations of this kind. She drank in every minute of her existence, as if it were a drop of honeydew prepared specially for her palate. I never could believe that her age was what she had declared it to be. She seemed to look younger every day. Sometimes her eyes had that limpid, lustrous innocence that is seen in the eyes of a very little child, and again they would change and glow with the earnest and lofty thought of one who had lived through years of study, research, and discovery. For the first few days of my visit, she did not work in her studio at all, but appeared to prefer reading or talking with me. One afternoon, however, when we had returned from a short drive in the Bois de Boulogne, she said half-hesitatingly, "'I think I will go to work again tomorrow morning, if you will not think me unsociable.' "'Why, Sarah, dearest,' I replied, "'of course I shall not think you unsociable.' I would not interfere with any of your pursuits for the world. She looked at me with a sort of wistful affection, and continued, But you must know I like to work quite alone, and though it may look churlish, still not even you must come into the studio. I never can do anything before a witness. Casimir himself knows that, and keeps away from me. Well, I said, I should be an ungrateful wretch if I could not oblige you in so small a request. I promise not to disturb you, Zara and do not think for one moment that I shall be dull. I have books, a piano, flowers. What more do I want? And if I like, I can go out. Then I have letters to write, and all sorts of things to occupy me. I shall be quite happy, and I shall not come near you till you call me. Zara kissed me. You are a dear girl, she said. I hate to appear inhospitable, but I know you are a real friend, that you will love me as much away from you as near you and that you have none of that vulgar curiosity which some women give way to, when what they desire to see is hidden from them. You are not inquisitive, are you? I laughed. The affairs of other people have never appeared so interesting to me that I have cared to bother myself about them. I replied, Bluebeard's chamber would never have been unlocked had I been that worthy man's wife. What a fine moral lesson the old fairy tale teaches, said Zara. 
I always think those wives of Bluebeard deserved their fate for not being able to obey him in his one request. But in regard to your pursuits, dear, while I am at work in my studio, you can use the grand piano in the drawing-room when you please, as well as the little one in your own room, and you can improvise on the chapel organ as much as you like. I was delighted at this idea, and thanked her heartily. She smiled thoughtfully. "'What happiness it must be for you to love music so thoroughly,' she said. "'It fills you with enthusiasm. "'I used to dislike to read the biographies of musical people. "'They all seemed to find so much fault with one another, "'and grudged each other every little bit of praise "'wrung from the world's cold, death-doomed lips. "'It is to me pathetically absurd to see gifted persons "'all struggling along and rudely elbowing each other out of the way "'to win what?' A few stilted commonplace words of approbation or fault-finding in the newspapers of the day, and a little clapping and shouting from a gathering of ordinary-minded persons, who only clap and shout because it is possibly the fashion to do so. It is really ludicrous. If the music the musician offers to the public be really great, it will live by itself and defy praise or blame. Because Schubert died of want and sorrow, that does not interfere with the life of his creations. Because Wagner is voted impossible and absurd by many who think themselves good judges of musical art, that does not offer any obstacle to the steady spread of his fame, which is destined to become as universal as that of Shakespeare. Poor Joachim, the violinist, has got a picture in his private house in which Wagner is painted as suffering the tortures of hell. Can anything be more absurd when we consider how soon the learned fiddler, who has occupied his life in playing other people's compositions, will be a handful of forgotten dust, while multitudes yet to come will shout their admiration of Tristan and Parsifal? Yes, as I said, I never cared for musical people much, till I met a friend of my brother's, a man whose inner life was an exquisite harmony. I know! I interrupted her. He wrote the letters of a dead musician. Yes, said Zara. I suppose you saw the book at Raffaello's studio? Good Raffaello Cellini. His is another absolutely ungrudging and unselfish spirit. But this musician that I speak of was like a child in humility and reverence. Casimir told me he had never sounded so perfect a nature. At one time he, too, was a little anxious for recognition and praise, and Casimir saw that he was likely to wreck himself on that fatal rock of poor ambition. So he took him in hand and taught him the meaning of his work, and why it was especially given him to do, and that man's life became one grand sweet song. But there are tears in your eyes, dear. What have I said to grieve you? And she caressed me tenderly. The tears were indeed thick in my eyes, and a minute or two elapsed before I could master them, at last I raised my head and endeavoured to smile. "'They are not sad tears, Zara,' I said. "'I think they come from a strong desire I have to be what you are, what your brother is, what that dead musician must have been. Why, I have longed and do long for fame, for wealth, for the world's applause, for all the things which you seem to think so petty and mean. How can I help it? Is not fame power? Is not money a double power?' "'strong to assist one's self and those one loves? "'Is not the world's favour a necessary means to gain these things?' "'Zara's eyes gleamed with a soft and pitying gentleness. "'Do you understand what you mean by power?' she asked. 
"'World's fame? World's wealth? "'Will these things make you enjoy life? "'You will perhaps say yes. "'I tell you no. "'Laurels of earth's growing fade. "'Gold of earth's getting is good for a time, "'but it palls quickly. "'Suppose a man rich enough to purchase "'all the treasures of the world. "'What then? "'He must die and leave them. "'Suppose a poet or a musician so famous "'that all nations know and love him.' He too must die, and go where nations exist no longer. And you actually would grasp ashes and drink wormwood, little friend. Music, the heaven-born spirit of pure sound, does not teach you so. I was silent. The gleam of the strange jewel Zara always wore flashed in my eyes like lightning, and anon changed to the similitude of a crimson star. I watched it, dreamily fascinated by its unearthly glitter. Still, I said, you yourself admit that such fame as that of Shakespeare or Wagner becomes a universal monument to their memories. That is something, surely. Not to them, replied Zara. They have partly forgotten that they ever were imprisoned in such a narrow jail as this world. Perhaps they do not care to remember it, though memory is part of immortality. Ah, I sighed restlessly. "'Your thoughts go beyond me, Zara. I cannot follow your theories.' Zara smiled. "'We will not talk about them any more,' she said. "'You must tell Casimir. He will teach you far better than I.' "'What shall I tell him?' I asked. "'And what will he teach me?' "'You will tell him what a high opinion you have of the world and its judgments,' said Zara. "'And he will teach you that the world is no more than a grain of dust, measured by the standard of your own soul.' This is no mere platitude, no repetition of the poetical statement, the mind's the standard of the man. It is a fact, and can be proved as completely as that two and two make four. Ask Casimir to set you free. To set me free? I asked, surprised. Yes, said Zara, looking at me brightly. He will know if you are strong enough to travel. And nodding her head gaily to me, she left the room to prepare for the dinner hour, which was fast approaching. End of section 13